Hi, this is Nick Forster. This week in E-Town, we are going back in time to 1997. We've got so many great shows, so many pieces and parts of great shows we've been trying to feature, but this one just felt just right as it was. It includes one of my favorite all-time interviews, and it starts right now. the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, it's E-Town, with this week's guests, Shanaki recording artist Cliff Eberhardt, Warner Brothers recording artist Iris DeMint, and special guest, President Jimmy Carter. Right now, here's your host, Nick Forster. Thank you, Helen. Thanks a lot. Welcome to E-Town. We get together every week. We'll listen to some great live music and talk a little bit about the world around us. This is a very special week for us uh, because, among other things, it's certainly the first time we've, we've ever had uh, Secret Service at one of our shows. <laughs> Made us all kind of proud, tiny, tiny bit nervous to make sure all our crew managed to pass the security clearance, but uh, so far, so good. I think we're doing okay. And, uh, and it's a great honor to have President Carter on the show. As we do every week, we're going to get started with some music. Our first guest has been here before. He records for Shanaki Records. He lives now in Massachusetts. Years ago, he made his living as both a taxi driver and a jingle singer in New York City. And uh, all that and much more has given him plenty of song uh, fodder, you know, ideas for, for new songs. He's a talented songwriter. Would you please welcome back to E-Town, Shanaki recording artist, Mr. Cliff Eberhardt. Thank you. backyard There's a crow at the window With the devil scream There's bones in the sink Tell me what does this mean Ooh Having a voodoo 
morning My wallet's missing My car won't start Someone who hates me is attacking my heart Off my Christmas card list I received no letter No facts I see There ain't no message On my message machine No smoke signal Telegram to read Who in the hell's in this pain to me Ooh, having a voodoo morning Attacking my heart Some angry neighbor Sweeter I stepped Someone I left Off my Christmas card list I received no letter No facts I see There ain't no message On my message machine No smoke signal Telegram to read Hell sent this pain to me. Ooh, having a voodoo morning. Have no, having a voodoo morning. So, Cliff, you were a taxi driver. Yes, that's in New York gave City. Me the calm demeanor that you see in front of you. Yeah. <laughs> so, there is. It's you were you're one of the few who speaks English, probably. I actually was in a group of musicians and actors and stuff that all spoke English, and we weren't very aggressive cab drivers. We were we were sensitive cab drivers. <laughs> but you made a lot of money because you went everywhere really slowly. Probably went everywhere really slowly, and yeah. I, I helped people. Yeah. And during this time, that was when you were doing some jingles and some national Yeah, that's, why, that's how I quit doing the cab was I got... A jingle is a commercial. It's not a Christmas thing. Believe and, me. Yeah. <laughs> I did that Heartbeat of America commercial and... and um, You're the voice singing Heartbeat of America. That was me. Yeah. What does it sound like? It went, can we do this? Yeah, do it. Maybe Chevrolet will sponsor no, this, yeah, we'll this beautiful it. show. <laughs> What does it sound like? It went, it's the heartbeat of America, today Chevrolet. <laughs> I know, that's my hit. I sing my songs, nobody recognizes them. I sing that, they go nuts. <laughs> I also did a, just for the taste of it. Okay, now I'm going to do one of my songs and I want you to sing every other verse, okay? Well, it's a, it's a tough job being a songwriter who's famous for that stuff. Yeah, this is a real tough job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I can't wait to give up another day of this so I can go back driving a cab, you know? So what is this next one you got picked up? This is one you made up that no one is going to recognize, right? Well, it was on an album, but the album sold 24-5 copies, something like that. So. But hopefully there's one or two people that would recognize it if they own that album. If my mom were there, she'd know what the <laughs> last one is. No, I have another question for you before you start this. Did you, in fact, campaign for President Carter? I sang at a rally in Carbondale, Illinois, for his first campaign. Mm -hmm. I did. I came out here on short notice because he's one of my idols and one of the greatest examples of a human being I think we've ever produced in this country. I, I chose to do this song tonight because I thought it was appropriate. It's about uh, somebody who follows a path in his life when he uh, is not exactly encouraged to do so and faces a lot of adversity. And I use the, the, the metaphor in it as the army in a war, but it's really any path that we choose to take and have a hard time, and the guy in the song actually follows that path. So Anyway, it's called Brave Little Gray. Thank you, and, and thank the E-Tones and Nick and Helen. They're wonderful to play with.
brave little guy Shanaki recording artist, Cliff Eberhardt. His latest CD is called The Mona Lisa Cafe. Cliff is going to be back a little later on in the show. We're also going to hear from President Jimmy Carter, who's written a new book called Living Faith, which deals with, uh, among other things, how his own faith in God carried him through all the various stages of his life. But first, we're going to hear some more music. Our next guest is a very lucky woman. She has one of the purest, most beautiful singing voices. And uh, she's a gifted songwriter. And she gets to travel with her husband, whom she adores most of the time. That's right. And she has a wonderful new record out on Warner Brothers. Would you please welcome, along with her fine band, Iris Dement. You gonna stand and play mandolin, Nick? Yeah, that'd be great.
I'm Nick Forster. You're listening to a special rebroadcast of a show we recorded back in 1997. And we've got more coming up after a short break. Your visit to E-Town is made possible in part by the Scientific and Cultural Facilities District, or SCFD, one of the largest cultural funding mechanisms in the United States, supporting nearly 300 organizations in the greater Denver area. You're listening to E-Town. I'm Nick Forster. You're listening to E-Town. Iris DeMint is here with us in her band. Iris, what's it like being on the road with a band for the first time? This is, this is kind of new stuff for you, isn't it? Yeah, I've, um, I've always gone out by myself. This is the first time, and I feel like I got lucky because I've got a lot of really great guys. They're behaving themselves in the bus and everything. Well, I didn't say that, but... Yeah. <laughs> no, they don't behave themselves. That's probably why I like them so much. Yeah. And- <laughs> And your record also is a little different. There's a little more of a departure of kind of a more contemporary sound, electric guitars and a bunch of stuff on there. Mm-hmm. I entered the electric world, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's about time, I guess, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and, and as you're traveling through this electric world of yours, um, <laughs> are you finding the people who are more used to your acoustic world uh, are, are coming along with you? Or are, they, are they putting up a fight or are they having a good time? Oh, pretty much. You know, uh, some people, I'm sure, would prefer that I uh, do the same kinds of instrumental, you know, things that I did in the past. But uh, for the most part, people have come along with me. People don't like change too much, do they? No, that is true. But uh, I guess I'm not one of those people. Yeah. (laughs) So. Is this another song from your new record that you got picked out? Yes, this is the first song on the record, and it's actually the first song that I wrote for the record. And I wrote this song at a time when I thought I would never be able to write another song. I had gone a long time without writing, which is a hard experience if you're a writer, and, and that's what you that's where you get a lot of your joy in life from. So yeah. uh, this song came along and um, helped me a lot. It's called When My Morning Comes Around.
Thank you. Iris DeVette, along with Fran Breen on the drums, Richard McLaren on the guitar, and the lap steel, and Don Johnson on the bass. Her new CD is called The Way I Should. It's out on Warner Brothers Records. And Iris and her band are going to be back a little later on the show, as will Cliff Eberhardt. But before we get back to music, uh, we're going to get to do something that I think is pretty important. It has to do with recognizing individuals who have gone beyond the normal call of duty to help other people out. It's really a very simple concept. You who are listening to the show right now, you send us information about different people in your communities, and we give them an award, some, some encouragement, some much-deserved recognition. And I have to say that we have heard from so many of you with so many great stories from your different towns all around the country. This week is a little bit different. There are very few people whose lives have embodied so many qualities of community activism and volunteerism, and in essence, kind of a heightened sense of humanity. And our winner this week is one of those people. And uh, here comes Helen to tell us about this week's winner. Thanks, Nick. Um, you know, we're doing things a little different today. We, we do this every now and then. Our staff decided as a group to nominate the winner this week. And they've chosen someone who's uh, been an inspiration to millions of Americans. Since leaving the presidency, uh, President Jimmy Carter has gone on to set an example of how to give back to others and also to his greater community. For him, community has reached global proportions. And uh, through his work with the Carter Center, as well as his hands-on efforts with Habitat for Humanity, he has brought relief and aid to hundreds of thousands of people worldwide. And we're honored this week to have with us in person to receive this week's Achievement Award, President Jimmy Carter. Thank you. You've already won them over. I know, well, thank you for this. <laughs> All right, time's up. Thank you very much for being here, and see you, see you next time. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, President Carter. It's a, it's a treat to have you here in E-Town. Well, I'm delighted. Yeah. Thank you for letting me come. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your new book. The uh, title of my book is Living Faith, and, uh, well, the book really came out of my lifetime of teaching Bible classes every Sunday morning. I began when I was 18 years old teaching as a midshipman at the Naval Academy, and I've continued up until now. Uh, and I, it was a very revealing book, the most difficult book I've ever written. Mm -hmm. A lot of the times that I wrote a chapter and, and showed it to Rosa, she said, oh no, you're not putting this in the book. <laughs> but, uh, because it was too personal? Or well, because... too personal. You know, yeah. some real serious problems that Rosa and I have had in the marriage since her wedding a little more than 50 years ago. And uh, I think that we are still married because of our shared religious faith. The problems I have with my father as a child uh, and with my sons. Some of the setbacks, disappointments, tragedies, losses in my life. But I think some of those personal stories are actually, it makes it accessible, makes it very real for people. I think it's important to have that in there. Well, I think so. In this modern, fast-changing, technological world, I think a lot of folks are looking for something that doesn't change, something that can provide a foundation for an extraordinary life, whether you're famous or not. Um, it, it must have been disconcerting, though, when you left the Navy, you went back to Plains, and uh, your father passed away, 
and you began to take over the family business. And there were situations that you were put in that were sort of diametrically opposed. On the one hand, your faith tells you one thing, and the practice and the performance of your neighbors and the, some of the racial issues that you were facing were, seemed at odds with one another. Well, I had come out of the submarine force, uh, which was totally integrated racially mm-hmm. under President Harry Truman's direction. When we got back to Plains, therefore, my wife and I were quite progressive you know, on the race issue. And I had a group of my best customers who had dealt with my father come right. and say, uh, Jimmy, we want you to join the White Citizens Council, which was uh, an anti-integration group. And I said, I'm not going to join. And they came back later with a whole group of them and said, you know, we were going to pay your dues for you. And I wouldn't permit them. So they organized a boycott against our business. And we thought we were going to have to move back into the Navy. But, but we didn't. We stayed there, and mm-hmm. primarily because my family was respected and because I was so stubborn, we, uh, <laughs> we survived this crisis. And then, uh, obviously, the community later changed around. Right. But at the time, the church was not necessarily, um, didn't necessarily share your views that separate but equal was, uh, was not okay in either the U.S. Constitution or according to the Bible. It was not something that the church shared. Well, that's true. I was a deacon at Plains Baptist Church. And I was gone one Sunday for a deacon's meeting, and they voted not to permit African-Americans to come in our church to worship. And I heard about it. I went back home, and I made a speech saying that I thought we ought to permit anyone who came to worship to come in the church, regardless of race or whatever. Mm-hmm. And we had a vote. There were ordinarily about 50 people at a church conference. That morning we had 250 people there. And uh, six people voted on my side. Uh, five of us Carters plus one, uh, <laughs> one guy who was in the choir. He was kind of hard of hearing. I don't think he understood <laughs> what the vote was about. But the, the interesting thing was that only 50 people voted to exclude African-Americans. 200 people didn't vote, mm-hmm. which I thought was a very significant indication. Yeah. And then after the church conference was over, a lot of the younger people in the church called me and said they agreed with me, but they didn't want to vote publicly. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of a turning point that was taking place in the South at that time. Yeah. If you've just joined us, you're listening to E10. We're speaking with President Jimmy Carter. When you were running for president, there's an interesting story in your book about a trip to Washington and the Congressional Black Caucus was interviewing potential candidates. And uh, tell well, us about well, that. Well, Martin Luther King Sr. and Andy Young were supporting me. I didn't know anybody in Washington much. I had, I'd been a peanut farmer and, and so forth. And Andy took me up to introduce me to the Black Caucus, which I think at that time was 22 African-American members of the Congress. And they interviewed all of the presidential candidates. And so when they would go in, they would ask them questions about legislation and social affairs. And one of the standard questions I learned later was, uh, how many black people are on your staff? And the most liberal of all of the candidates with a well-known uh, reputation said, but I don't have anyone yet, but I'm looking for somebody to hire. And another one had two, Andy told me later. Uh, when they asked me, how many black people on your campaign staff? I said, I never have thought about it. Uh, but I began to name them. And I named 22. <laughs> and, uh, and you knew them by name. I knew, sure. Well, they yeah. had worked with me. They were right. the core of my yeah. whole campaign. So I left. Yeah. And uh, obviously, I got some strong support because of it. <laughs> Although I was pretty conservative on some of the social issues, right. you know. 
there was one conversation you had in which you were accused of being a secular humanist, and you took, took Well, that took was after I was president. Right. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, when I got to be president, uh, it's when the more conservative uh, Baptists took over the Southern Baptist Convention. And one of the newly elected presidents came to the um, Oval Office, and I had a nice meeting with him. I was very honored that he came to see me. And when he got ready to leave, he said, uh, Mr. President, I hope that eventually you'll come back and be a Christian again <laughs> instead of a secular humanist. I didn't know what he was talking about and uh, <laughs> thought I'd always been a Christian. You know, I was a born-again Christian. But uh, we've had uh, to, to face some of the things of that kind. Yeah. You know, when you deal very deeply with social affairs and things of that kind. Well, uh, some of the more conservative or fundamentalist Baptists didn't like what I was doing. Mm -hmm. What are you thinking about the way the uh, Christian coalition is entering the realm of politics these days? Well, first of all, I don't have any criticism of them. I think they have a perfect right to disagree with the way I feel. I think I have a perfect right to disagree with the way they feel. I was raised in a very conservative Baptist family. My father believed in a total separation of church and state. And I think in the last 20 years, there's been a breakdown in that separation. I think that the separation ought to be maintained. Yeah. And as president, can we talk a little bit about the way your faith helped you through issues that I'm sure were very tricky, very, well, very challenging, uh, things that, that were, there's no easy path. I prayed more when I was president than I did any other time <laughs> in my life. <laughs> but... Uh, But I never did pray that I would be popular. I never did pray that I would be reelected. I prayed that I would keep my nation at peace. I prayed that I might find peace for other people. And uh, when the hostages were taken by Iranians, I prayed that every hostage would come home safe and free. All these prayers were answered. I don't have any doubt that God always answers our prayers. Sometimes the answer is no. <laughs> And then when we get that kind of response to a prayer, we have to decide, why did I get the negative response? It would have been much easier for you as a politician from a uh, sort of uh, public perspective to use military force in uh, the, the hostage crisis. Yes. And it's well documented that that's great for ratings, you know. So in and that sense, do you think that your faith has had a negative impact on your legacy as a president? I don't know. I think over a period of time, to be associated with uh, peace and human rights may not be a negative thing. I would say so. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to E-Town and we're speaking with President Jimmy Carter. After leaving the White House in 1980, you went on to eventually in 1982 form the Carter Center and then get involved with Habitat for Humanity. Tell us about that transition. Well, I was quite young when I left the White House, uh, involuntarily. <laughs> I, was only, uh, I was only 56 years old, which yeah. is quite young, and for an, for an ex-president. And, and I wanted to continue the things that I had tried to do as president. We now have at the Carter Center a program of peace, democracy, freedom, human rights, environmental equality, and uh, the alleviation of suffering. For instance, we analyze every conflict in the world every day, and we try to negotiate when we possibly can to end a conflict or to prevent one. We go all over the world and hold honest and democratic elections when a country is moving from 
an authoritarian government to a democratic government. Mm -hmm. We deal with human rights issues. We have a large number of programs. For instance, from the Carter Center, we coordinate the immunization of all the world's children. We analyze every human illness to ascertain which ones might be totally eradicated from the face of the earth and things of this kind. And we have about 350,000 small farmers in Africa whom we teach how to grow more food grain. We can triple their production of corn or wheat the first year. These are the kind of things that we do at the Carter Center. And then the other thing that we've done not associated with the Carter Center is to work with Habitat for Humanity. We began doing that uh, in 1984 because the international headquarters is right next to Plains. And a lot of the Habitat folks would come to my Sunday school class and instead of me recruiting them, they recruited me. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Now, why is it that you and the Carter Center are able to do things that are very effective and logical and, and not being done by the federal government? Well, that's a, that's a very, very good question. I think that the point is that there are 30 major conflicts going on right now, wars. Every one of them is a civil war. The United Nations was organized to deal with wars between nations. 50 years ago, that's what happened. And it's not appropriate for the UN or, or the United States government to go inside a country and try to deal with revolutionaries trying to overthrow or change a ruling party. The ruling party is a member of the United Nations and it's a ruling party to whom an American ambassador is accredited. We are in there with agriculture, with eradication of disease, with immunizing children and so forth. And when they do get ready to negotiate, we can go in. Mm -hmm. So when we are permitted to go in by the US government, then we can do a very effective job. So rolling up your sleeves as a negotiator for peace, as uh, a worker in Habitat for Humanity who's helping people find housing all over the world and doing all the various works that you're doing with the Carter Center, that's a very different life than the American public expect an ex-president to lead on the golf course and hanging around. And I mean, you've you've chosen a pretty active path. And and, uh, I've noticed that, yeah, it is an active path. And but, but it's a wonderful path. You know, as you can imagine, we have a menu of hundreds of things that we can choose. And Rosa and I are able to choose the ones where we think that our own ability, our own knowledge, our own background can really make a difference. And that's the ones we choose. So we don't duplicate what others are doing. And we're totally nonpartisan in our approach. And, and we just take on action programs at the Carter Center. And do you think that today we could handle it if we had a leader, an elected official, who was as forthright and as able to uh, express the details of their own spiritual life and their own personal life and so on. I mean, is that kind of uh, vulnerability popular or, or possible for a leader today? I don't know. I really wouldn't want to put that on the, on the shoulders of a, of a mayor or a governor or a president. Mm-hmm. I, I think it ought to be on an individual's shoulders. And that's why I wrote this book. I think the people of our nation are looking for a better understanding of what can I do myself. Right. Because uh, quite often, we look for success. I think all of us look for success in a way. And I remember that the uh, Romans asked St. Paul, what is the measure of success in effect? What are the things in life that never change? And Paul gave them a very strange answer. He said, the things that never change are the ones that you cannot see. That's right. And he didn't explain it, but what he meant was that they're the things you can't see that make you successful in life, a commitment to justice, to peace, humility, service, compassion, love. You can't say any of them, but that's a measure of a successful person. 
and not how much money you got in the bank or how many yeah. times your name gets in the paper. Yeah. Well, congratulations on a life of uh, great success. Well, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much for being here. We'd like to present you with this Frame Achievement Award certificate, and uh, it's a great honor to have you receive it and be here with us, and thank you so much. Thank you very much. Yeah. If you're listening out there and you think you may have someone in mind for the award who's working to better your hometown or a community elsewhere, please let us know. You can reach us by way of the internet, etown.org, or write to us the old-fashioned way at Box 954, Boulder, Colorado, 80306. Thank you, Helen. The Achievement Award, President Jimmy Carter. Pretty powerful stuff. Iris DeMint is going to be up before too long with her fine band. But before that, we're going to welcome back a fine singer and songwriter from central Massachusetts, I guess up around Northampton, Massachusetts. Would you please welcome Mr. Cliff Eberhardt. Thank you. That's a tough act to follow, I tell you. Please help me welcome a great band, the E-Tones, and Nick and Helen back to the stage to sing this one with me. They're a fantastic, fantastic band to work with. So. so far I knew my actions had influenced you Never thought you'd stay away Me, I never know exactly what I want I One side to the other But I knew I wanted you Couldn't believe When you packed your car And you moved to Baton Rouge Baton
you all that much There must have been some love Is it bitterness you hold still justified I'll admit I was a fool Made one mistake You sealed my fate When you moved back Cliff Everhart, from the great state of Massachusetts. I'm Nick Forster. You're listening to a special rebroadcast of an E-Town show that we recorded way back in 1997. Thanks again to Iris DeMent, Cliff Everhart, and President Jimmy Carter. We will be back with more of this special show after a short break. This portion of E-Town is made possible by the Bohemian Foundation, building stronger communities through the Bohemian qualities of creativity and imagination. On the web at bohemianfoundation.org. You're listening to E-Town.
I'm Nick Forster. I'd like to say hello to our listeners who are hearing E-Town on stations like WKZE in Red Hook, New York, my old hometown, on KBAC, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and on WUGA in Athens, Georgia. As always, if you want to learn more about what we're up to here at E-Town, there's lots of information available at etown.org. And now we'll get back to our special show from 1997. Here it is. Well, we're in the final musical segment of the program this week. We've got Iris DeMent and her band, Fran Breen on the drums, Richard McLaurin on the guitar and the lap steel, and Don Johnson on the bass. Iris has got her guitar. She's getting ready. She's looking pretty ready, actually. <laughs> did you get a chance to hear President Carter speak at all? I sure did. Yeah. I stayed as close to the stage as I could. Yeah, yeah I, uh, he's very inspiring. Now your new record is another kind of a departure for you, which is you're getting kind of involved in politics, too, in your own way, aren't you? Well, I guess in a way it's politics. I kind of just think of it as, um, you know, the things that I'm writing about, they may seem political, but they're actually about people that I know, myself and in many cases. I'm talking about my experience yeah. being in the world. So, yeah, I guess in a way they're political, but they're also pretty uh, personal. And this, this uh, next song you're going to do? Uh, uh, this song's called Wasteland of the Free. Yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about how this one <laughs> came around? Well, um, I just uh, started um, reading the newspaper a little bit and looking at things around me. I found that um, some of the things I saw really made me pretty mad, to be perfectly blunt. And um, I write songs about things that um, matter to me and... Um, these are some things that mattered. Nick, you're going to play, I hope. Mm-hmm. Living in the wasteland of the free. Democracy feels like I am living in the wasteland. 
Demet, Warner Brothers recording artist, the fine band Richard McCorm, Fran Breen, and Don Johnson. Well, folks, we've got time for just about one more song. It's the uh, classic sing-along. We hope you can join us. I'd like to invite Cliff Eberhardt to come out and join uh, Iris and her band, get the E-Tones, and Helen Forster. I'd like to thank uh, especially President Jimmy Carter for being on the show this week. And uh, don't forget, now, no matter where you are, you can sing this song. It's important. Music is what this thing is all about, and this is why we're all here, so join in. I'm Nick Forster. Hope you can be with us next week right here in E-Town. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Islands. From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream Your land, this land is my land From California to the New York Island From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters This land was made for you and me As I was walking that ribbon of a highway That endless skyway And I saw below me That gold valley And this land was made for you and me This land is your land This land is my land From California To the New York Island From the Redwood Forest This is a production of E-Town. Thanks again to Iris Dement, Cliff Eberhardt, 
President Jimmy Carter. Thanks to our production crew. That's Donna Giardina, Todd Ayers, and a special thanks to Helen Forster. I'm Nick Forster. Thanks for listening.